Because even if I handle this in the most God-honoring possible way, which I hope to do, the topic itself can potentially arouse passions if we allow it to. So those of you who are not married, please keep a close watch on your thoughts. Some of what you're going to hear is going to be stuff to kind of file away for future reference. Most of it, I think, is going to be applicable to you now. But in either case, let's uh, make best use of this time as far as how you receive this sermon. All right, so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to the church or if you're visiting, we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Right now we're in this section called the Sermon on the Mount, which is 5 through 7. And the Gospel of Matthew sort of presents Jesus as the, um, the Messianic King. It's basically the fulfillment of everything that God began to do through Israel. And Jesus is like a second Moses. You know, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Jesus is now the mediator of the New Covenant. And Moses gave the law to the people at Mount Sinai. And now Jesus is going to go up on a mountainside and basically explain what the law is about and what it's for. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins with this section called the Beatitudes that talk about blessing and blessedness. Now, the people Jesus was talking to, they knew all about blessing. Okay, when the Old Covenant that Moses mediated, the substance of it is basically this. If you worship God and if you follow the law, you'll be blessed. Your land will produce lots of crops and your women will bear lots of children and you'll have wealth and safety and no disease and no sickness and peace and safety. If you don't worship God, if you worship false gods, and if you don't follow the law, you'll be cursed with famine, disease, and plague, and conquest, and everything else. So basically, to the people Jesus was talking to, it was blessed are those who do the right things. And as we found out in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's blessed are those who want to be righteous people. Right? Blessed are those who realize how unrighteous we are, but want to be righteous people. Excuse me. And then Jesus is now going to start talking about the Ten Commandments. You know, last week we heard some stuff about commandment number six. This week it's going to be commandment number seven. As we're finding out, the Ten Commandments are not primarily about the behaviors that they don't allow. They're more about the heart attitudes that cause the behaviors. And this kind of goes against our behavioral way of thinking, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, like in a court of law, and I'm sure Jeremy can check me on this, You can't be arrested and tried and convicted and sent to jail for being homicidal. You can only be sent to jail for committing a homicide, right? But as we found out last week, we can be sent to hell for being homicidal. In fact, we can be sent to hell for being angry enough to insult somebody. Uh, Anybody ever insulted anybody in a fit of anger? Yeah, me too. That kind of cuts right through our religious pretenses now, doesn't it? So... The Sixth Commandment is not primarily about homicide. It's primarily about the sinful, uncontrolled, unrighteous anger that, if left unchecked, will eventually result in homicide. Today we're going to be looking at the Seventh Commandment, and as we're going to find out, it's more about the attitude that causes the act, more so than the act itself. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, it's going to be up on the screen. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 30. And so I'll just read through the whole passage, and then we'll, we'll take a look at it. So Matthew 5, 27 to 30. All right, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. 
All right, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Um, that's the seventh commandment. Um, they're in Exodus 20, if you ever want to read all of them. <clears throat> Last week was, you shall not murder, which is the sixth. This is, you shall not commit adultery, which is the seventh. Now, what does adultery mean? What is adultery? Uh, basically, adultery means two things. In the most narrow sense of the term, adultery means a married person having sexual relations with someone who's married to someone else. Okay, let me say that again. Adultery in the most narrow sense means a married person having sexual relations with someone who's married to someone else. It basically means David and Bathsheba. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's this really twisted episode in the life of King David where he commits adultery. He has sexual relations with someone who's married to one of his soldiers. You know, Bathsheba was a married woman. He commits adultery. He tries to cover it up. When that doesn't work, he arranges to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, which happens. And then Bathsheba becomes another one of David's wives because, for reasons known only to God, polygamy was allowed back then. But once Bathsheba was no longer married, her marriage to David was not adulterous in the narrow sense because she was no longer married because David had her husband killed. It's a really twisted story. But that's the most narrow understanding of adultery is a married person having relations with someone who's married to someone else. Now, in the broad sense, adultery is basically a synonym for sexual immorality. You know, in the broad sense, when God created men and women and marriage and sex, God had one specific thing in mind, which is one man in God's image and one woman in God's image becoming one person in God's image through the covenant of marriage and expressing that covenantal union through sex. Any kind of sexual relations or sexual expression other than that is basically adultery against God. It's adultery against God's plan for marriage. It may not be adultery against a specific person. It's adultery against God's plan for marriage that he created. In this passage, Jesus is talking about adultery in the broad sense. He's talking about sexual immorality in general. Now, verse 28 Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, in this example, Jesus doesn't say whether either person is married to anyone or not. This is just if any person looks at any other person lustfully, that's an act of sexual immorality, regardless of who's married to who or not married to who. This is talking about immorality in general. Now, what is lust? What does lust mean? There's some misunderstanding about this. Lust basically means... Wanting something that God doesn't want you to have. That's basically what it means. Now, coveting is wanting something that belongs to somebody else, that you know belongs to somebody else. This is more general than that. Lust just means wanting something that God doesn't want you to have. Now, I'm allowed to look at my wife. God has given her to me. She's allowed to look at me. God has given me to her. And any of you who are married, you're allowed to look at each other. You're allowed to do more than look at each other because God has given you to each other. It's not a sin for a husband and wife to enjoy what God has given within the covenant of marriage. It's not that sex itself is bad or that desire itself is bad. It's wanting something that God doesn't want you to have. Now, I'm not allowed to look at any other women or men or children or anybody else. God has not given anyone else to me. As long as my wife is alive, God's not going to give anyone else to me. Okay? Lust is wanting someone or something that God doesn't want you to have. If you're married, that's who God has given you. If you're not married, God has given you no one. So any kind of look of lust towards anyone is sexual immorality. 
Now, verses 29 and 30, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. All right, what in the world is this talking about? Um, How about I spare everyone the theological discourse about hyperbole and figures of speech and discourse analysis and all the 50 cent words. Let's get down to brass tacks. All right, what... Jesus clearly was not telling his followers to start harvesting body parts. So what, what was he telling them? Well, what I think he was telling them was this. Excuse me. In 2012, my family was in New York City when Hurricane Sandy hit. And I don't know if that really affected Syracuse much or if anybody remembers that, but it affected New York a lot. And in addition to the subways having to be closed for a while to repair flood damage, the harbors were also closed because of flood damage. So what that meant, among other things, <clears throat> is that the tanker ships that would bring gasoline into New York City could not dock. And so there was no new supply of gasoline coming into the city for a couple weeks. And there were gas lines and rationing, like back in the 70s, there was no new supply of gasoline because the point of entry was closed. We couldn't fuel our cars because the point of entry for gasoline to get into the city was closed. So what Jesus is telling his followers and us, I think, is this. <clears throat> Whatever it is that fuels our sin, close the point of entry. Now, this has to do with what stuff that we look at. You know, the internet, excuse me, the internet, movies, television, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's not only only the obvious thing, pornography, there's lots of television shows and movies that celebrate immorality and are intended to inflame people's sin and inflame people's passions. Whatever it is, that causes our hearts and minds to sin, close the point of entry. I mean, we all live on the internet, right? But I mean, do we have to put parental controls on ourselves because the internet's too much of a temptation? Is our streaming services offering stuff that's too much of a temptation? Close the point of entry. Um, Stuff that we listen to, like there's a lot of music out there that is sexual on purpose. Um, When I was in New York, uh, the church we were helping to plant had a lot of Brazilians and our drum player Uh, Marco uh, told me once that when he was younger back in Brazil, he used to play percussion in samba bands at dance clubs. And the the style of music and rhythm of samba music was such that it was the style of samba dance is so sexualized. These dance clubs were basically like hookup factories where where young people would come and listen to sexy music and get involved in this really sexy dance and then go hook up someplace. And when my friend became a Christian, He said, I can't do this anymore. I can't play this music that's promoting a whole lifestyle of immorality. So he quit doing that. And he only plays in churches now. But you know, music, dance, if that fuels your sin and fuels your passion, close the point of entry. Get rid of it. Um, Stuff that we read, stuff that we think about, you know, books, journals, blogs. If there's any kind of material that we're reading that's fueling sin, that's inflaming our passions, close the point of entry. You know, it's, it's difficult because it's, it's everywhere. It's all over our technology. You know, we all live on the Internet, and it's, it's so easy to get to stuff that's unrighteous. But, I mean, what Jesus is telling us is whatever it is that, however sin gets into our heart and mind, close the point of entry. Now, Jesus kind of uses some pretty extreme language in this command, right? He's talking about, you know, <clears throat> you know, if you cut off your hand, you can't just tape it back on with duct tape and have it work, right? If you pluck your eye out, you can't just shove it back in there and see again. This is really extreme language. 
why is Jesus using such extreme language to talk about this? Well, I think it's because of this. There's a very real sense in which sin is a lot like cancer. You know, my wife could probably explain this with a little more scientific precision, but cancer is something that just inherently causes death. You know, there's nothing good you can do with cancer. You can't negotiate with cancer. You can't make a deal with cancer. You can't bargain with cancer. You can't meet cancer halfway. There is no halfway. Cancer just causes death. The only way to treat it is to eliminate it and remove it so that life can continue in your body. And I'm not trying to be callous towards anyone who's been through cancer, but I really can't think of any other illustration that makes the point the way Jesus made it when he said this. You can't negotiate with sin. Sin just causes death. Sin separates us from God. You can't negotiate with sin. You can't make a deal with sin. You can't bargain with sin. You can't meet sin halfway. There is no halfway. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. The only way to deal with sin is to remove it and close the point of entry so it doesn't keep coming back in. Now, realistically, <clears throat> is there any hope of us actually being able to do this? I mean, we're sinful, we're human, you know, <clears throat> it's everywhere, it's all over the internet, it's all over technology, there's so much temptation that's just rampant. Is there any hope of us actually being able to follow this command and do this? The answer is yes, I have good news. Uh, flip over to Titus 2, if you're able, or it'll be up on the board. Uh, Titus 2 gives us some good news for this, this situation. <clears throat> Start in verse 11. And then listen carefully to these verses. The grace of God has appeared, it says, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I have good news, okay? We're not only saved by grace... We're trained by grace. Okay? The same God who saves us from sin trains us to say no to sin and yes to God once we're saved. God doesn't just throw us in the middle of the South Pacific and say, okay, swim. No, God trains us. God empowers us. And God transforms us so we can actually do this through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, through the Word of God, that God has given us so we can read it and learn more about him and get to know God better through the church, the people of God. We can support each other in this. This is sanctification, like we talked about a little while ago. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the people of God. And that series was very well-timed, by the way, because a lot of what's in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with sanctification. God doesn't just give us commands and not give us the power to do them. God empowers us, and he trains us. You can almost say we have a personal trainer in the Holy Spirit who's going to train us in how to live in a way that pleases God. God doesn't just tell us what to do and say, all right, figure it out. No, God empowers us and trains us. He gives us his Holy Spirit who's transforming us so that we become more and more like Christ. You know, like I said, the word for that is sanctification. Sanctification just means becoming more and more like Christ. That's all that means. So there is hope. We have power. We have training. We have each other in the church to help each other out. We have the word of God. God has given us what we need to actually do this. So, how do we prevent immorality and lust? You know, Jesus is talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about lust. You know, he's saying if we lust, we're committing immorality. How do we get this off the table? You know, how, <clears throat> how do we just 
How do we actually do this? What does this training that he gives us look like? How do we get immorality and lust completely off the table? Well, I'm going to first talk to the... There's a couple answers to this. First, I'm going to talk to the unmarried people, and then I'm going to talk to married people kind of separately. So how do we prevent immorality and lust? All right, unmarried people. Um, The way to get immorality and lust off the table is to build lives that are spiritually healthy and sexually asleep. All right? For unmarried people, it's build lives that are spiritually healthy and sexually asleep. All right, just so we're all on the same page with God. If you're not married, you are not to have any sexual relations with any person for any reason, period. End of sentence. Okay? People can have all kinds of different opinions about dating and courtship and engagement and curfew and chaperones and minimum age and all that kind of stuff. When it comes to sex itself, there are no shades of gray. If you're not married, do not have any kind of sexual relations with anybody. Period. That's God's rule, not mine. Okay? Now, if you have obeyed this command up to now, if you're still physically a virgin, that's good. Praise God. Just remember three things, okay? Number one, virginity is not the gospel. Number two, it doesn't make you a better class of Christian. And number three, you don't get the crown of glory for that. Okay? When I tell my kids to go to bed at a certain time and they go to bed at that time, they don't get rewards for that. That's called obedience. Obedience is required. If God tells us to not have sex outside of marriage and you don't have sex outside of marriage, that's called obedience. Obedience is required. You don't get the crown of glory for that. Just keep obeying God and please resist any temptation to feel self-righteous about it because we're all sinners, right? Yeah, I was a virgin the day I was married, but that doesn't mean I never thought about it or fantasized about it or lusted about it. I needed mercy and grace like everybody else. So if you're a virgin, that's good. Keep obeying God. Just don't get self-righteous about it. Now, if you have not obeyed God in this, if you have had sexual relations outside of marriage at some point, that doesn't make you a lower class of Christian because virginity is not the gospel. Okay? If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, <clears throat> if you've received his forgiveness of sins, then you're a child of the living God. Period. End of sentence. But nothing. You're a child of the living God. Whatever sin went on in the past is done. It's been forgiven. God's not going to speak about it or talk about it. Satan might try to talk about it, but God's not going to. It's done. It's taken care of. You're a child of the living God. And you now have the grace to obey God going forward. Does everyone remember the story about the woman caught in adultery who was dragged out in the street and these men wanted to throw stones at her for committing adultery and Jesus said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember how that story ended? It ended with a command. Jesus forgave the woman. He did not condemn the woman. He gave her mercy and forgiveness. And then he gave her a command. Don't commit that sin anymore. See, God gives us grace so that we can obey him. God doesn't give us grace so that we can disobey him. We were already disobeying him without grace. God gives us grace so we can obey him going forward. Whatever happened in the past is forgiven. It's done. God's not going to talk about it. But God has given us the grace to obey him going forward. So for those who are unmarried, remain sexually asleep, as the Song of Songs says, and let your wedding bells be the alarm clock that wakes you up someday. Now, how do we be spiritually healthy? What does that mean? 
Well, the Christian life is a walk. You know, Galatians 5 says, walk in step with the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a walk. If you had to walk from here to California, how would you do it? If you had to get to California and there was no other way to get there, and the only way to get there was to walk, how would you do it? Just walk. Put one foot in front of the other until you get there, right? I mean, it seems like California is a long way off, but if you had to get there, you would just walk. You just put one foot in front of the other. The Christian life is a walk, right? It's not an airline flight. You don't get there in a few hours. The Christian life is lived one step at a time, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, sanctification. The Christian life is a one prayer at a time, one conversation at a time, one worship service at a time, one confessed sin at a time, one evangelistic conversation at a time. You walk in step with the Holy Spirit. There's no shortcuts. There's no easy answers. There's no sanctification hacks, okay? The Christian life is a walk. And God has promised he's going to get there. Yeah, I mean, the image of Christ seems a long way off most of the time because we all still sin. But God has promised, Philippians 1, 6, that he's going to get us there. We just need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> since we're talking about being spiritually healthy and we're talking to unmarried people, just to be more specific, what does the Bible have to say? I assume that all of you who are not married probably want to be married someday. If you haven't started thinking about relationships and marriage, you probably will pretty soon. So what does the Bible have to say about being spiritually healthy towards the opposite sex? I mean, that's kind of important. Well, two things. Uh, the first is uh, 1 Timothy 5.2. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. Um, a few verses back in 1 Timothy 4.12, uh, Paul tells Timothy, no, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Now, there is a specific context to these commands, but the larger principle holds for everybody. You know, Paul's instructing a young pastor on how to set an example for his flock. Well, examples are meant to be followed, right? So if Paul is telling Timothy what to exemplify, he's basically telling everybody else what to do in order to follow that example. Now, it doesn't say whether Timothy was married or not, or it doesn't say how young Timothy was, but Paul made a specific point about telling Timothy to model purity. So, you know, for guys, single guys, if you're having a conversation, if you're spending time with a woman, treat that young woman like a sister, because she is. And I would submit that our kinship through the blood of Christ is an even greater kinship than biological bloodlines. So treat women as sisters even more so than you would treat your own biological sister. Young ladies, if you're with a guy, treat that guy like a brother, even more like a brother than your biological brothers, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So we treat each other with purity. And then the other thing, the other way to be spiritually healthy towards the opposite sex is to guard your heart. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who, as Mike would say, have some pretty jacked up ideas about relationships and marriage and sex. Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're a person of character. So you have to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, you know, guard your heart with all vigilance, <clears throat> for from it flow the springs of light. That's Solomon speaking to one of his sons. And then there's this kind of interesting bit of poetic dialogue near the end of the Song of Songs. It's very, very vivid. And we're going to look at that. Um, in the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 8, uh, the woman, the wife in the song is, seems to be remembering a conversation that her older brothers had about her when she was a girl. And so the woman's remembering her older brothers talking. They say, you know, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What should we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Meaning these brothers have a young sister 
who's not developed yet. So what are they going to do? How are they going to protect their sister, take care of their sister when she's older and someone wants to marry her? So the brothers say in verse 9, <clears throat> they say, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Now, what's that talking about? Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, in our, uh, in our current political climate, the word wall has kind of taken on a life of its own. <laughs> but if you can leave that aside for a minute and think back to the ancient world about 3,000 years ago, all cities had walls around them for protection. Right? That was the only way a city could defend itself was to have a wall around it. And some cities like Jericho had notoriously big, strong walls, but all cities would have a wall around them to protect them from enemies. Somewhere in the wall would be a door or a gate to let people in. <clears throat> so the, the brothers are talking, basically talking about guarding her heart. They're, what they're basically saying is if she is a wall, if she's someone who knows how to guard her heart against ungodly men, then she's ready. We'll give her our blessing. If she's a door, if she's someone who does not guard her heart but just lets men in and out, she's not ready. We'll basically protect her ourselves. That's what they say. Now in verse 10, the woman takes their illustration a step further. She said, I was a wall, and my breasts were like watchtowers. Again, think back to the ancient world. A wall, a wall had a city around it for protection. The wall would have watchtowers in it. And the guards could climb up in the watchtower high above the city and look out over the countryside and be able to spot enemies long way off. So the woman is basically saying, not only did I guard my heart against ungodly men, I could spot an ungodly man a mile away. It's basically saying what Proverbs 4 is. Guard your heart, wall, with vigilance, watchtowers. <clears throat> so single people, you know, if you, if there's a guy, if there's a person that you think you might be interested in, don't let people in and out of your heart. Go up in your watchtowers and observe that person. Find out about them. What are they like? What kind of qualities do they have? And, and just as an aside for, for guys, for single guys, um, once in a while over the years, I've kind of run into this thing from single guys where if you ask them what they're looking for or hoping for in a wife, if you kind of cut through all the religious, pious talk, what they're basically looking for is a hot chick who just happens to be a Christian. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> now, that is... Which is, which is, no, listen, that's totally backwards. It's totally worldly. All right. Guys, young guys, single guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? Godliness is sexy. Godliness is sexy. One of the really fascinating things about the Song of Songs is we never find out what they actually look like. The Song of Songs is this poetic dialogue between a husband and wife who are praising each other and expressing their love for each other and even admiring details of each other's bodies. But in all of this dialogue, we never find out what they actually look like. We only find out how they see each other. See, <clears throat> if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we all basically look pretty much the same. I mean, you know, physically, anatomically, there's not really a whole lot of variation. I mean, even skin color. I mean, nobody's actually black or white. We're all just shades of brown. Attraction and beauty is not about what you physically look like. It's about how you see each other. Like, there's one place in the song where the woman, the wife, says that her husband's legs are like columns. You know, the, the, the Temple of Solomon, this huge temple at Solomon that was like half the size of the carrier dome. There were these twin columns that would support the structure. And she says that her husband's legs are like the columns of the temple. She's not talking about his musculature. She's talking about when she looks at her husband, she sees strength and security. 
She says that his eyes are like doves. And when this woman looks at her husband's face, she sees peacefulness and gentleness. You know, the guy, the man says that his wife's eyes are like the pools of Heshbon, which is one of the vacation spots of Israel. When this husband looks at his wife's face, he sees the most wonderful, desirable place you'd ever want to go, like the beaches of Florida times 10. When he looks at his wife, that's what he sees. It doesn't say what they look like. It only talks about how they see each other. And as Christians, you know, as Christian guys, if you meet a woman who has Christ-like qualities, who loves Jesus, who loves the Word, who shows the fruits of the Spirit, I'm not talking about being spiritually perfect. If you meet a woman who shows Christ-like character and has Christ-like qualities, it's not going to matter what she looks like on the worldly scale because godliness is sexy. So, if you're, if you're young, if you're single, treat each other with purity, guard your heart, use discernment. You know, if, if at some point, you know, treat the, each other like brothers and sisters. If at some point this person might be more than a brother or more than a sister, well, you can have that conversation when the time comes. But as far as just in day-to-day life, singles, treat the people around you with purity and guard your heart. All right, married people. How do married people, how do we as married people get adultery and lust off the table? And by the way, <clears throat> one minute soapbox on adultery, okay? Because we're talking about married people, we're talking about like cheating, all right? Adultery, cheating on spouses, is not something that just happens, okay? Adultery is not a mistake, okay? Running a red light and getting pulled over by a cop is a mistake. Adultery is the result of about 12 bad decisions in a row, the first of which is not building your marriage, okay? Way before a guy ever strikes up a conversation with his female coworker, and way before they ever have a drink together, and way before they ever have another drink together, and way before they end up at her place, before that ever happened, <clears throat> that man did not build his marriage with his wife. Those are the last dominoes. If the first domino doesn't fall, none of the others will. So adultery doesn't just happen. Adultery is mainly the result of men not building their marriages and not investing in their wives and communicating and loving and caring for our wives and building that relationship. If that relationship is built, all that other stuff is not going to happen. So, <clears throat> I mean, the way to prevent adultery and lust for married people is build our marriages. I mean, that's, that's basically it. Now, how do we build our marriages? Same way you build a relationship with Christ, one day at a time, one step at a time. As Christians, we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. As Christian couples, we hopefully walk in step with the Holy Spirit together. Our marriage is built one day at a time, one step at a time. One conversation at a time, one prayer at a time, one resolved conflict at a time, one sacrificial act at a time. You just build it. You walk in step with the Holy Spirit. There's no shortcuts. There's no quick, easy fixes. You just build your marriage by walking in step with the Holy Spirit. How do you build a sexually healthy marriage? One night at a time. You build a healthy marital sex life one night at a time. Now, when I was younger, and just a quick word for the unmarried people, when I was younger, there was this myth that purity culture types used to dangle in front of young people. I hope that it's not going on anymore. But one of the myths that purity culture people would dangle in front of young people was, if you just wait until you're married, your wedding night will be the most amazing, incredible night of your life. Uh, no. You know why your wedding night's not going to be the most amazing night of your life? Because it's not supposed to be. Okay? Think about this for a minute. If you get married when you're relatively young and live to be relatively old, you're going to be married for at least 40 years. That's about 15,000 days, give or take. 
your wedding day and your wedding night is page one of a book that's going to run 15,000 pages. Anybody ever read a 15,000-page book? If you ever did, and page one was the most amazing page of the book, and the other 14,999 pages were kind of, eh. <laughs> that wouldn't be much of a book, would it? No, really good books get better as they go along, right? Page turners. Really good books get better as they go along, and so do good marriages. Now, young people, if you've obeyed God, and your spouse has obeyed God, and you've not had sex until your wedding night, your first night together is probably going to be a little awkward. Okay? It might be a little uncomfortable physically, especially for women. You're probably going to need a little bit of time to figure some things out about how your bodies work and how your bodies work together. Don't worry about it. You have 15,000 pages in which to figure out how to write poetry together. It's okay if the first chapter doesn't sound like Shakespeare. <laughs> Just one night at a time. You keep loving each other and learning each other and discovering each other and going through life together and you build your marital sex life one night at a time. And after about five, six, seven years, you start to look at each other and go, hey, this is getting really good. And after about 15, 16, 17 years, you start to look at each other and go, whoa. <laughs> This is getting amazingly good. <clears throat> but there's no shortcuts in that process, okay? Your marriage is built one day at a time, and a really good, healthy marital sex life is built one night at a time. There's no other way. There's no cosmopolitan four tips to have the greatest sex you've ever had tonight. That's not reality. Sex is part of a marriage covenant that's built one day at a time. And as married couples, your sex life is built one night at a time. And by the way, if your marriage is not spiritually healthy during the daytime, if you don't have Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 during the day, you're not going to have song of songs at night, okay? That's not going to happen. Those two things go together. You're not going to have one without the other. <clears throat> so if your marriage is spiritually unhealthy for some reason, talk to whoever you need to talk to. Talk to an older couple. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Mike or Jeremy. Listen, we're not monks around here, okay? <laughs> we're all married. We all know of what we speak. I'm not part of the leadership of this church, but we just celebrated 18 years. The elders have been married longer than that. We're not monks and priests around here. We're all married. <clears throat> we all know what the issues are. We all go through it. You know, Mike and Jeremy are men of God. Our wives are all women of God. They will shepherd you through it as best you can if your marriage is not healthy. I mean, it's too, this is too important. Don't let it go. Don't let it slide off and go into adultery. If your marriage is not healthy, talk to whoever you need to talk to to try to put it back together. But the way to get adultery and lust off the table is by having healthy marriages that honor God spiritually and sexually. And that's, <clears throat> that's how we get this off the table. All right, I'm going to close with this just to try to, to try to put the whole topic into perspective a little bit. Um, <clears throat> uh, marriage and sex are wonderful gifts from God, but they're earthbound gifts, Okay. A little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 22, Jesus is going to tell some people that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage. Meaning, <clears throat> and I should say in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells the Corinthians that our resurrected bodies are going to be immeasurably more glorious than the bodies we're in right now, meaning that our resurrected relationships are going to be immeasurably more glorious than the relationships we have here. And so... <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, marriage and sex are good things, but they're earthbound things. Okay? I love my wife. We love each other. We love being married to each other. 
We love having sex with each other. We love that God gave us kids, but none of those gifts are going to follow us into the resurrection. When we die and our bodies are resurrected in the end times, we're, going to be, we're all going to be children of the Father, and we're all going to be the bride of Christ. There's not going to be any human marriage or human families in the resurrection. Our relationships and our life is going to be just immeasurably more glorious than that. It's going to be a different category. So, you know, if you're married, God intends for marriage to be a celebration. If you're married, by all means, celebrate. But understand that the real celebration comes later. If you're not married, if you don't get married, you know, I have people my age that I went to college with who are in their late 40s and 50s who are men and women of God who have never married for a variety of reasons. And whatever the reason is, if you don't get married, life may be difficult. You may battle loneliness. You may battle disappointment and depression and other things. But just understand, our faith has to do with eternity, not just this life. You may have a difficult few decades. I get it. But it, we have something waiting for us in eternity that's more glorious, more wonderful, more immeasurably intimate than any relationship we could ever fathom down here. So whatever your experience with marriage is, whether you have a really good marriage or if you've had dysfunctional marriage or no marriage, just understand the fact that the real celebration comes later. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gifts. Thank you that you have given us marriage. You have given us this wonderful gift that mirrors your relationship with, <clears throat> with the church. And I pray that we would build our marriages. I pray that the young people would build purified spiritual lives and would guard their hearts and treat each other with purity and help us who are married build marriages that truly honor you and our testimony to the world. We thank you for this time together and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.